Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) Dance of the Dead, which is not uh, Zack Snyder's latest zombie extravaganza for Netflix. (laughs) It sounds like it, though. I know. The Dead Rise and Take Part in a 24-Hour Roller Disco (laughs) in Idaho. (laughs) Dance of the Dead or... They shoot zombies, don't they? Yes. (laughs) If you're listening, Zach, think on it. So the episode was directed by Don Chaffee. Yes, indeed. Um, Which puts it uh, quite an early shoot. Yeah, it was production order four. Yeah, but very sort of episode eight. So we're very late into the the programming. There's a reason for that. Yes. Um, Patrick McGowan was not very happy with what was shot. And it was basically... It was shelved, it was, wasn't it? It was basically shelved, yeah. Mm. And he was it was rescued, essentially, by the editor. Mm. And then he sort of presented it to Bagoon. So, oh, oh, right. <laughs> well done. <laughs> this will do nicely. Just going to interject here for a second and say thank you to everybody. And um, thank you again for your positive comments uh, and notes and corrections as well, which we will address in future episodes. Indeed. In fact, one of the interesting things uh, came from Rick Davey, who runs the Unmutual Yes, uh, which website. is a great website and Absolutely. a great, very good Facebook page to follow as well. The unmutual.co.uk. Mm. If, you're, if you're a Prisoner fan, you, you would hopefully already have been on there. It's absolutely chock-a-block full of, of Prisoner information and facts. And Rick's been in touch with us uh, with some wonderful notes, very informative. And a lot of it has to do with um, the running order and the perception of the core seven mm-hmm. episodes. And we're going to talk about this later in the, uh, in the series. But it's an interesting point because when you think about the fact that this wasn't, Magoon wasn't very happy with this one, mm. that it was shelved, that it sort of took him. Because it's always been assumed, because it's a chaffy, because it's early on, that this is maybe one of the core. Mm. But there was a book, wasn't there, published by Matthew White and uh, Jaffer Ali, yeah. which stated as fact, boldly, boldly. Uh, what the seven episodes were. Mm. And then Magoon basically said in an interview, well, that might be their choice, but it certainly wasn't mine. Yes. So if it's coming from Magoon himself, <laughs> you know, there's a question there. What actually are the seven episodes? And this is still up for debate. Yes. So yes. this is a whole episode and we'll do this as an episode and we'll get a few uh, yes. uh, people involved I and think have so. that conversation. Yeah, yeah. We're building up a head of steam on this thing. Yeah. It's great. So I think we're certainly going to have at least one. But I think it's important because I, I didn't know this. And, and I know, you know, you and I have, have both grown up believing what yeah. we thought was the seven episodes. Yes. See, I, w- I would have assumed it was because, and th- this is another interesting thing, uh, all the way through uh, this podcast, I think you and I have been pretty seen eye to eye on most mm. things, but for, I, get to, I get the suspicion that we're not on the same page on this episode because yeah. I, I adored it. You're a big fan of Dance of the Dead. I love Dance of the Dead. Yeah. I, I, in fact, uh, it haunted me as a kid. I found there was something particularly chilling about it. And when I saw it again mm. in bright uh, Blu-ray <laughs> colour, uh, it, 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 it was better, in, uh, if anything. It was dream. Well, we'll talk about why I love it. But a, a flawed production, sir, would you, mm. would you agree? Um, well, considering it was shelved, 
and McGowan wasn't happy with it, you know, uh, in order to, to salvage it, mm. certain changes had to be made, which means that there's not really a natural flow to the production of the episode. It's had to be kind of Frankenstein a little bit in order to get it ready for yeah. the there broadcast. There's not much of a... There's, there's very little plot. Mm. I mean, there's a, uh, a festival, a carnival, that they have to get ready for. Mm. That, that's about it, really. And then you've got a subplot yeah. with a body being discovered. But like uh, Operation Mincemeat, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's very much like Operation... In fact, it's a direct steal from Operation Mincemeat, mm. but it's not, that's not really been mentioned in... Um, obviously, in Operation Mincemeat... There'll be a film coming out soon, probably. Yes, yes, there is. Uh, yeah. I was trying to make that, you know. Were you? I, I read the Ben McIntyre book. I yeah. thought, well, this is great. I know they've already made The, the Man Who Never Was in the 50s. Yeah, but I thought, yeah, well, this, yeah. could, this would be wonderful. And clearly somebody else was thinking the same thing. But I know a few film producers and I have lots of money. But what, one thing we can agree on is this is an early episode. Yes, it is. The dialogue even says, I'm new here. Yes, I think a lot of people's running goals include Dance of the Dead as episode two or maybe episode three. It, it works quite well as episode two. Mm-hmm. In fact, quite, it's amazing how many of them do. Mm. Um, I know episode two was supposed to be free for all, but actually there's quite a few episodes that work even better. Mm. This one, he seems very gauche and um, doesn't really know what's going on. Mm. But it, it, and it ties up a few interesting loose ends. In, a, in, a, in an interesting way that a second episode would. Hmm. Um, but it's, it makes very little sense as episode eight, but I think it's simply because it wasn't ready till then. Yes, yes. And I think that's the case with, with quite a few of the episodes. And when we're looking at their broadcast order, you know, it stands to reason what was ready. Yeah. And what was ready to go out. <laughs> it's in the Radio Times. Yeah. Already. We shouldn't we need, maybe, we need this. maybe we shouldn't look too deeply into uh, reasoning behind these orders in, in some cases. Yeah. yeah. I, say, I think it was like well, ABC, ABC must have been an incredibly easy one to edit. Mm. I was like, oh my God, well, this one's ready. <laughs> yeah. uh, episode three. <laughs> now, I've got a direct quote here from Anthony Skeen. Mm. Uh, the prisoner was generally a bastard. He said to Stephen McKay in uh, 1988, George Mark Stein had seen and presumably liked plays of mine on the box because he was, as you know, he, was, he wrote for a uh, place for television, didn't he? Mm. But this was... Early on in the process, and we talked about a show bible yes. before. And he, he does back up the fact that there wasn't one. Yeah, he says, I saw not one piece of paper. The show was a cosmic void. They sat there waiting for ideas. Mm. A free hand? Oh, God, yes. And that's a direct <laughs> quote from Anthony Skeen. Yeah, I mean, uh, and the show backs it up. This is, this is very much a writer's show. This isn't McGowan's show. He's talked a lot about the fact that it was very inspired by uh, Cocteau, mm. um, particularly Orpheus. Orpheus, yeah. Orphée. Do you know what? I saw in lockdown, I, I went through a bit of a phase of, of getting up stupidly early yeah. um, to watch films while everyone else is asleep. So I wouldn't be disturbed <laughs> if I had to sort of turn Did it you off. watch uh, Orphée? I, I watched Orphée and yeah. t- trying to, watching a film like that mm. at 5 a.m. when you really should be dreaming yourself yeah. was a mesmeric Experience isn't that based on uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, the Greek yes, story? Yes, he descends into hell, and there's all yes, and there's a lot of labyrinthine imagery mm. in this as well. But there's a specific reference the the, the radio that he finds um, on the body, and I well, for some reason I remembered it being like Churchill or something mm. when he plays it that it was news from the outside, mm. and he was ah oh, he was he's sitting on top of the um, looking out to sea. Uh, I, I, I remembered it as him hearing news from the outside world for mm. the first time in ages and being sort of... But it wasn't. It was just a, a man 
reading sort of strange poetry about sort of gripping the nettle and mm. stuff like that, which is exactly what happens in Orfei. At one point, he just sat in the car listening to the radio and this strange poems being read out, which, which he believes are specifically for him. So it was, it was given a, more than any other writer, I think. Mm. I think Scheme was basically just given free hand mm. to just all of his great loves and uh, put tributes into all this. And as a result... Uh, it's it's just a very individual standalone episode. There isn't another episode like this one. Mm. It's all very 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 dreamy. Well, dreamy. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're right. There is that kind of surrealistic element yeah. to it, isn't there? And it also ties in with what happens in Checkmate as well, with Gerald Kelsey having a free hand. Mm. Uh, but we'll talk about that obviously in the next in the week. Next, next week. Yes. So we have our third female number two. Well, the first actual. Or first, uh, oh, the other two are kind of like twists. Oh, yeah, it's, they it's are a woman, a woman yeah. in power. But this is, but Mary Morris does the opening dialogue. She's the only she? one who does. Yeah. yeah, she does it brilliantly as well. Do you think so? I thought so. I yeah. hate her opening. Dialogue. Do you? Yeah, I just, I feel like she's gone into a vocal booth. So right, here's the script, and she's just done the first take. It just, <laughs> no offense to the late Mary Morris. I don't mean that with any disrespect. I just mean that there just seems to be this oddness of intonation and delivery. Oh right, I, do, I, it, I find it sort of nice and sort of. I find it quite sinister and quite remote. Well, yeah, I, I find it. Yeah, but I, I, I find it the same, but in a good yeah. way. Okay, fair enough. But this is good. This yeah. is good that we're, that we're preferring. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. Yeah, we're, this is going to end up in a fist fight. <laughs> yeah. No, I've just, I don't know, I've always find that, that opening from Mary Moss quite odd. Yes. You know, but that maybe that's just me. Well, I, she's got a better laugh than Colin Gordon. Yeah. And we see our night supervisor. So we, we, we find out, and, and also next week where we have um, a new supervisor as well, in that Peter Swanick has, you know, we assume that he's always going to be there as the supervisor. Yes. But we actually see, and I've noticed this more on this rewatch, the amount of supervisors. And, and they're distinctive in their green turtlenecks. We have a night supervisor played by Michael Nightingale yeah. in this episode. Swanick's not there. And next week we have Basil Dignam. Yes. So it's... We're getting this... Um, like, yeah, Swanick isn't as prevalent as we as we assumed. He's just like more iconic, I yeah, think. He, yeah, he, yes, it's, well, bald head glasses, you're mm. going to be an icon. Yeah. <laughs> There's also something that we need to address as well. Go on. Angelo Muscat wasn't in every single episode. Was he not in this? No. No, sorry. Yeah, he was in this, but no, he's not in every single episode. He doesn't appear in Living in Harmony, for example. He also doesn't appear in The Girl Who Was Death. How have we got that? That's one of the... Fa- it's like a pub quiz, prisoner yeah, yeah. fact. He, Bes- who's the Besides Patrick yeah. McGowan, which <laughs> actor appeared in every single episode? I know this one. I know this one. I know Angela Muskin. <laughs> but I think it's important that we address these corrections because, you know, we're creating something. We're adding to... Hopefully adding to the conversation. Yeah. And I think the worst thing we can do is to propagate... Of course. Uh, ...apocryphal stories. Quite. Let's quite. set the record straight as much as we can. And, you know, maybe somebody will hear it and remember that, or maybe they won't. But well, I think you've, you've corrected me here, because I, I, I w- I've always assumed there was, uh, he was the only other actor to be in all of them. Wow, brilliant. And that's, uh, again, thanks to Rick Davey from the Unmutual yes. website. A thousand thanks, Rick. Um, we have Duncan McRae. 
Indeed. Who uh, I might, If I shut my eyes and think of Duncan McCarthy, I just think of whiskey galore. Yes. Whiskey. That's the password. There's a tragedy here. This this seems to crop up quite a few times it with does, prisoner actors. It? Yeah, he um, he died before the episode aired. Yes, I think was this his final work? I think it's one definitely one of his final final pieces of work. Yeah, yeah. No, he he did a film called uh, Thirty Is a Dangerous Age, Cynthia, um, which would have been uh, considering that was released in 1968 and he died in uh, 67, so probably around the same time as the prisoner. Yeah, was he playing a thirty year old? He's playing Jock McHugh. <laughs> <laughs> But he was also famous for Casino Royale, wasn't he? The yes, uh, yes. Peter Sellers version as uh, Inspector Mathis. Was he there the, at the very beginning? He was the one who walks into the latrine with Peter Sellers. Mm. I'd like to see some identification. He sort of looks down. <laughs> this is the best sort of pre, pre-title Bond sequence ever. <laughs> That's about 10 seconds. Now, he's a great actor. He, there's a sort of... Because in this uh, episode, he's basically experimenting on number six, and he's quite brutal, and he doesn't mm. mind sort of uh, getting results when he's stopped by number two. But he carries an air of a, a sort of captured Nazi scientist. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. He's, got a, he's a nasty, brutal man. In fact, there was a cut scene where he's burying bodies, yeah. uh, which, they, which they edited out, or I don't know if they shot it, to suggest that he's... he's Deceased people as completely disposable. Wow, like and a Nazi scientist. Yeah, yeah, but he's got that, hasn't he? He's yeah. got that sort of uh, totally cold way about him. Yeah, he's and the look as well. Yes, very gaunt. But he's he's, he's always played quite sort of affable people. As far mm-hmm. I'm sure he, uh, he's got a better range than that. But that's how I remember him as being a delight yeah. whenever he shows up in anything. And he's ooh, he's a bit nasty in this one. <laughs> and Tammy the cat returns. Yes, indeed. Well, technically, the first appearance really. Yes. In production order. So this would have been Tammy's first engagement. Having had her salary doubled yes. after some uh, some fierce negotiations on Tammy's <laughs> agency. So at one point she actually gets locked in the uh, in the room with the bodies. Okay. <laughs> is this in the deleted scene, is it? No, it's in the it's in the episode when they, oh, when right, they okay. just uh, towards the end when they leave and they just lock the cat in this room <laughs> and just absent, ab- absent mindedly walk away. Yeah. This cat's thinking, hang on. I use some of my plate-breaking skills to get out of here. This, this is cat going to use a doorknob. Maybe that's why she wasn't in any subsequent episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody walks into that room, <laughs> fall out, <laughs> the cat runs out. Mary Morris's line, we're democratic in some in ways. In some ways, yes. Oh, it's quite a sinister... Yes, although it's got Anthony Skeen's handwriting all over it, yeah. uh, it does touch on a lot of the political allegory stuff mm. that McGoohan was into. It, it's kind of a, a knockdown of democracy and the perception yeah. of democracy mm. and uh, which is really I think where, where McGowan stood on this anyway he may have sort of mentioned that to Skeen in a bar yeah you know what it's about really <laughs> <laughs> you know it's about the illusion of democracy mm. and and that's an interesting point because you, you do have certain countries where there is an illusion of democracy but it's really an oligarchy yes in in a lot of cases in some cases dictatorship with the yes arguably what the what the village is, yes, in some respects, but. absolutely, yes. No, because there's there's always these. It's like you see with Dutton; he's completely mm. expendable. Hello, like, so much, hello, are you there? <laughs> <laughs> like so many, pretty much everyone seems to be completely expendable, except mm. number six, and these kind of excuses as to why they can't break him. And this and this this seems to be this episode's excuse. Mm. This man has a future with us, mm-hmm. mm, really, but Dutton doesn't. Dunn doesn't have a future, and he knows it as well. Played by the wonderful Alan White, the Australian actor. Yeah, I thought he... I mean, 
he was wonderful in this episode. Oh. And it, very interesting as well, because uh, you're kind of used to the village bringing in people from his past. Mm. But then, of course, it turns out that they're on it as well. They're treacherous, that's true. But, they, but Dutton isn't. Mm. He actually means exactly what he says uh, when he sees him on the beach. He's thinking all the way through, well, he's going to turn him in. This yeah. is a, he's, yeah. a, he's a prisoner. Yeah. He's a village stooge. Yeah. But he's not. And then at the end, when he's brought on... It, oh, it, was, it just sends shivers down. It's heartbreaking, down my, isn't it? It is heartbreaking, but it reminds me of. Um, do you remember Planet of the Apes? Yes. Oh, oh yes. When they when he sees his the, fellow the pilot, astronauts, yeah. and he turns him around, and he sees he sees the lobotomy scar. Yeah. That scared the hell out of me when yeah. I was a kid. So I didn't actually know what a lobotomy was. I just thought they'd scooped his brain out. Yeah. <laughs> as you would as a child. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought, oh, they can do that? And you're yeah. still, oh. And he, that sort of simple grin and the, and the humiliation of him being yeah. dressed as the jester. Yeah. Oh, God, it was it's dark. It is dark. It's a very dark episode. It is. There's an interesting scene when Number Six tries to get into the town hall. And he's stopped by Forcefield. Yes. And there's a line of dialogue from the villager. Yes. He says, oh, it's very fussy about who it lets in. I don't remember that. I, I thought he said, uh, you tried to go in the town hall. Yeah. But deliberately, like he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy with a sort of chin-strap beard. Yeah, that's him. What does he say? It's very fussy as to who lets it. Yeah, it says, um, it's fussy who it lets in. Oh, right. There's a, su- a suggestion of sentience there. Yeah, it. Yeah. And it, that doesn't happen again for the rest of the series. It's, it's a one-off. Well, arguably, Rover has that sentience as well. Well, yes. Or does it? Are they controlled? Are they? Is it an illusion of sentience, an, an illusion of artificial intelligence? Is this what Magoon was going with? This this prescience of, you know, we're, we're moving forward with technology. We're letting technology think for itself. Yes, Alas. like Rover, the town hall, Alexa. Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be careful doing that on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's quite interesting in a, in a later episode, which turned out to be a previous episode. Uh, Many happy returns on the paper on the newspaper. It says, "What's behind the town hall." Yes. Which, I, as soon as I saw this, I thought, ah, it reminded me of that. What is behind the town hall? Because yeah. to, presumably to most people, it's a mystery because you can't get in. Patsy Smart returns. Yes, uh, a wonderful waitress. Yes. Uh, this time as a, as a maid, she gives six the... Uh, oh, yes, the, the, the... I'd like to suggest it's a posset. You can laugh, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's not I, a term we really use anymore, is it? Plus, poss- it's more of a dessert, isn't it? Sort of it is today. Cream. No, yeah. it is today. And I, and I, I know why you'd say that, being a, a celebrated restaurateur. Oh, please, Tish and Pish. Uh, but a, but a posset was also a drink. Uh, I think it was milk and maybe eggs, I'm not sure, that they would give to children at night uh, in a bowl rather than a cup. Yes. And they would drink and it would help them send well, them off sounds, to sleep. Sounds quite delicious. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, Box of Delights? Uh, the 1980s on. BBC version. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, there's a, a scene that where the, the maid uh, gives um, one of the characters a, a posset. Yeah. So that's how I've, I've known it. But I, I, it just reminded me of that scene from Box of Delights. Thought, I'd love to know, is that a posset? I'll wager it. Do you know what, from now on, Let's let's add a little bit of apocryphal. <laughs> well, I think it's a very British term, isn't it? I it's, love the, it's just a wonderful word, posset. It is, isn't it? Yes, but, but you're it's, right. It's, it's, it's a dessert. It's now more known as a dessert. Yeah, you basically heat the cream and then put it into a glass, and you sort of add uh, lavender. Is quite nice, actually, mm. strangely. Uh, and well, then when you, when, you, when you leave it there, it sets. Yeah, but lavender and sleeping. Well, yes. Now people put lavender on their pillows, don't they, to help them sleep? Dilly dilly. Ooh. <laughs> One thing I do like about this episode is the cat music. Yes. 
<laughs> Which is ingenious. Yeah. You know, so, such a simple idea as well. It is a little bit jarring. And, and maybe you can argue it's a little bit cliché. You know, maybe something that's confined to children's television. Yes. You know, yeah, here yeah. comes uh, <laughs> Sally the cat. I mean, one of the things I love about this episode is the fact that it was it's it was clearly shot on location. Mm. And some of the scenes have a real... You see this later on when they, the, the, the camera is clearly confined to the huge back cloth, so they can't go this way or that mm. way. But when you're on location, the director has far more... Uh, expanse. Yeah, freedom of movement. And Don Chaffee makes great use of this. Mm. This feels movie-like, this one, in a way that you can't do if you're, on a, if you're confined to a set. Yeah. All the, uh, the scenes on the beach yes. are yes. just wonderful. They feel huge. Uh, I mean, and imagine what he could have done if he'd, this had been shot in widescreen. Yes. Even oh. though, well, I suppose technically it was shot in widescreen. Yes, yes, 35. Um, 35 mil. And then, obviously, cropped. Uh, to four by three. Yeah, I mean the the it does look beautiful. This episode, mm. it's it's. I think it's just Brent. Uh, was it Brendan J. Stafford? Mm. If I got that right. Yes. Was the cinematographer throughout the whole thing, and some of the episodes just look so different. You'd assume, uh, maybe maybe it was just the Chaffee influence because he said, yeah. no 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 no, it's more like a movie, dear. Mm. I want this to be a movie, and it looks. It just the, the colors are so bright. It's I mean it's designed to be. I suppose it's, it just adds to the dreaminess. Yeah, this one just feels like a dream, and then and then it turns into a nightmare. It looks exactly the way it should do, and it's uh, it's that all contributes to its uniqueness. Yeah. Here's a question for you: the busts in the village, yeah, which look Georgian in some cases with the sideburns. Who are they? <laughs> you see, I looked at one of them, and it looked a little bit like William Gladstone, I was Prime Minister. Say, the, but it's see, not. No, no. But because I've looked at, I, actually, that's sad. I looked at Georgian busts of Gladstone <laughs> and, and Victorian busts and things like. That. Um, and yeah, I, I think they were just props that were made for the series. I thought I might be wrong, but I can't find any information on on. Um, were there, who any, there, were there any of that actually at Port Merion? Now, they, they, these busts are uh, at uh, Bourne Wood, which yeah. is a part of the studio setting, so they're probably props from other uh, productions. The life of Gladstone. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> you know how, how good we are at making period dramas. <laughs> you know, that's one thing the Brits do brilliantly is make period dramas, yeah. <laughs> especially the BBC. But, yeah, I'm wondering if they were just props that were at the studio, you know, Property House just brought them in. Oh, we want some busts and there's paintings as well. You know, but it, it adds another layer, regardless of their origin, it adds another layer. F- for me, how long has the village been there? Oh, yeah. Are they the founders of the village? There's something to consider, but not to give too much credence to. But it's a nice little thought, I think. Maybe they are the, the progenitors of the... Is that the right word? Of the village. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. And some of the paintings as well. It might have been there since the Napoleonic era. Who knows? Can you imagine what they, instead of Rover, they just simply would have had a chap on a horse. <laughs> they were in a white... Stop! Well, even a white helmet. <laughs> just growling. <laughs> just throwing balls at mm. people. Ping pong balls. Well, those huge leather footballs. Yeah. But, the, I mean, the, you know, I'm, I'm, that would be a, a fantastic... Um, story actually you could do and the thing is these novels the novels that came out like the Thomas Dish novels and things like that 
I, I, I've read two of them, and they're odd, in my opinion. The Thomas Ditch is the only one I've, I've read, which it, it really didn't seem... It doesn't seem... I don't think they get the point no. of the prisoner. I think that to, it, I think they seem to strip it of any allegory. Yes, for a start, and just take the spy tropes. Shattered Visage does this as well to a mm. certain extent. It put, it grounds it too much in reality. It's a little bit like how a lot of sequels tend to do that. You know, yeah. they 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 they, they, don't, they miss what was great about the original, mm. and then then they take the plot points which they can then sort of continue on, mm-hmm. and it just becomes less and less um, relevant, more and more yeah. redundant. This is why I argue that the Truman Show. Yes. is the best version of The Prisoner. Yeah. Re is the best remake of The Prisoner out of the, the two available. <laughs> yes. Well, there's, a, there's another one. But you could, I mean, you could you can imagine this as a series or a book, couldn't you? The Village 1867 or something like that. <laughs> you could have the Boer War, the Crimea War. You can have you know, soldiers coming back. and uh, Yeah, that would be... <laughs> I can see that as a graphic novel, actually. So any graphic novel writers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd, re- I'd read it. Be seeing now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That'd be great, actually, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Mm. Um, he finds the body. Indeed. And we've already talked about Operation Mincemeat. Yes. Um, what I thought was quite funny is when he opens his wallet, and there's a couple of raffle tickets in there. <laughs> <laughs> Which he... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know we, especially in Britain, raffle tickets can be used for cloakrooms. You know, you you know, you take your cloakroom and they give you a raffle ticket uh, or or a numbered ticket so you can go and get your coat at the end of the night. Well, that's, you, that's what cinema tickets were. Do you remember when they used to sort of pop out of the uh, yeah? Ka-ching, ka-ching, but these are definite uh, rip off raffle tickets, aren't they? Yeah, that you can buy in any any uh, stationery shop. Drunk and he won anything? He probably won an all-expenses-paid cruise (laughs) (laughs) on a really badly maintained yacht. Yeah, but these days it's a bottle of wine, a box of celebrations and uh, (laughs) some stuffed toy. Yeah, great, thank you. Car Valley. (laughs) But but, uh, quite a nice um, link here is the the photo of, of the dead man. And the dead man himself is played by Ray Cannon. Go on. Is the props man. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And the, the photo um, is, is him and another uh, crew member. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I bet they love that. Yeah. Oh, this, is, this is my episode. It's my episode. Watch it. Yeah, look, there's me playing a dead man. But you can see me in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> but I, lo- I love the fact that everybody seemed to get involved in some way. Um, and also, um, I've been reading Eric Mivel's um, autobiography yes. recently Cutting Edge which is really interesting read actually um, and he actually pitched a couple of episodes oh yes there are a number of, of episodes that were unproduced that were either pitched or um, y- you know were, were under consideration or McGowan had had them and said no we're not doing this it's mm. too expensive you, you clearly don't understand television production this <laughs> is too much going on here but that's an episode in itself, actually. We could do a whole episode on that because we could cast it. We could fantasy cast it. Oh, brilliant. But there's one of these episodes where number six finds a... He sees a plane. That's right, there's a plane crash and they, they find a survivor. A survivor. And he sides with, and he hides him and he, he nurses him back to health and, and it turns out that he's number two. And uh-huh. that's the twist. You know, who would you cast as that pilot? Have they got to be from the 60s? Oh, it's got to be from that time period. Right, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, well, so well, we could do that as an episode. I'd show up Robert Shaw. 
Robert Shaw, interesting. For some reason, I just thought Robert Shaw would make a great number two, but he was just a bit too famous mm. by that point. He'd already done From Russia With Love. He'd already had his Oscar nomination for A Man For All Seasons. I think we'd have to look at Rose Tobias Shaw's contact book. We'd have to look at Avengers actors, oh, or ITC on. actors who had yet to appear, yeah. who, or who didn't appear. Like Richard Bradford. Richard Bradford, yeah. Uh, too American? Doesn't matter. I know, I know. I think if you have someone who's American... Um, that throws your audience off as well. An American pilot is downed. Rather than the British plummy number two type, you have somebody yeah, that who would is... Work. It that would, would work. Yeah, it would throw them completely off. Which, yeah, he was super cool, Richard Bradford, by then. We have an appearance by Aubrey Morris. Yes. The wonderful Aubrey Morris, who... Uh, Hello! What, uh, oh. what was he in um, Clockwork Orange? Mr. Deltoid. Mr. Deltoid. One of the great screen names. Oh, it's so uncomfortable, that scene, isn't it? Oh. He's sat on the bed with Alex, and he's putting his hand on his leg, and yes, it's like, oh, yes. oh this no, is... He was a, a singular actor, Aubrey Morris, wasn't he? He was in um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well. He played the captain yeah. of the uh, Golga Frencham Ark fleet, <laughs> who was in a bath. Through the whole episode, even when they crash landed on the Earth, he's still in the bath. Oh, it's brilliant. He's like, oh, put some more hot water in for me, please. So he plays the town crier, doesn't he? Aubrey he does. Morris. There's a fantastic uh, line in it. He goes, "There will be music, happiness at the carnival by order," <laughs> which kind of reminds me. Of, do you remember Flash Gordon at the uh, the wedding? They'll be set mm. the, the spaceship. They'll be uh, cele- people celebrate on yes. the, the occasion of the wedding on pain of death. Yeah. <laughs> You raised the point about um, the links to Orfe, the poem or the, the, the dialogue that he hears on the radio. Yeah. Now, I didn't make that connection because, to my shame, I've, I haven't seen Orfe. I'll get my coat. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't make that connection. So let's look, I, I, that's great. That makes more sense now. Yeah, in context, it still works as just a little plot thing that he's got because that basically that, that's the thing that gets him into trouble. Well, it also works on another level as well. Have you heard of number stations? No. A number station is um, a station that broadcasts. Sometimes it can be a piece of music, sometimes it can be um, a poem or a line of dialogue on a repeat. Mm. And there's a famous one called the Lincolnshire Poacher, I think it's called. Uh, So it's a a repeated sequence, like a little song. Yeah. And then there'll be like a series of numbers. One, seven, four, two. That happens in Orfe. When he's in the car, one of them is just someone going, Van, Van Oon. I think just Mm. just reading out numbers. Well, I don't know if they've ever really been explained, but a lot of people think they're communications from governments to their operatives, like spies. Oh, really? So oh, brilliant. Tr- so you would tune into this frequency and you'd hear, you know, one, seven, eight, nine. And if you're a spy, it's like, oh, my God, I need to get out of here. They'd have to listen to it. And then it's like, oh. So they would have their code, at, you know, wherever they were and say, oh, yeah, that's a message saying, you know, maybe it based on the intonation of how it said, or maybe it's the timing of how it said. Who knows? But ah. there's a theory behind number stations. And that's what it reminded me of. There's a, a show on... Um, Amazon with Simon Pegg called Truth Seekers, which came out with Malcolm McDowell in it. From the yes, day. yes, uh, came out a year ago, two years ago, and they actually use the Lincolnshire Poacher number station as as a plot device. Oh, brilliant! But it's an actual real thing. They had that in um, in Saigon, didn't they? In the American Embassy, uh, everybody knew that if the radio ever says, "And tomorrow it's going to be thirty-seven degrees Celsius," or whatever it is. Now it's White Christmas by Bing Crosby. 
that basically meant get out of there. Yeah. And then they were there sort of in 75 and uh, and now uh, tomorrow it's going to be 30. And everyone was like, oh, my, oh my God. I, yeah. I thought it was a joke. But Run. You can go on YouTube and type in number stations. And they're all over the world. I've never heard of this. Yeah. And that's when watching this episode, that's what I thought it was, a number station. <laughs> and it happens in, the, in Lost as well, the TV show. I kind of gave up on that after the first Is it two. on the first couple of episodes? I wasn't paying any attention. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> in that, they uh, find they get the radio from the airplane and they tune in and they hear a French woman talking and it's on a repeat. It's on a, a cycle, like a number station. Oh, do young people still do they, Is there an internet version of this? Because it's the oh, kind of thing you, you imagine going through the frequencies and finding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this this will be on, on long wave. Yeah. You know, but... Uh, yeah, fascinating. I think I think it's a relic from the Cold War. I think it would make more sense. But uh, the Lincolnshire Poacher ran until two thousand and eight, and it started in the mid sixties. Oh, fantastic! So it ran for over forty years. <laughs> I know the most boring. That's <laughs> <laughs> where Simon D went to work. This is this is this is the Lincolnshire Poacher number station in Cyprus. I wonder if any sort of spies listening to this podcast are suddenly just going to throw everything they've got into a suitcase and <laughs> yeah, jump on the run. nearest train. <laughs> five, three, nine, seven, one, five. Three, nine, seven, one, five. How cool is that? <laughs> That's fantastic. Three, and that ran for over 40 years. Well, it's Beats Radio 1. Uh, number 260 has a black badge. Yeah. Which I thought the only person to do that was uh, Georgina Cookson. Okay. When she walked in in Many Happy Returns. Yeah. Oh, why have you got a black badge? And it, it's, it's kind of compounds the whole uh, he's in hell or he's dead. It's the death. It's like the black rose yeah. on the um, McCartney's um, blazer on the Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. Oh, he's the one with the black rose. Well, he's dead, he's isn't dead he? He's dead then, isn't he? Didn't you know? Yeah. It's semiotics, isn't it? The, the black of death and all that yes. kind of stuff. Um, and also, I did, I did notice when she's on... Uh, I think when Mary Morris is making the announcement mm. to, about the carnival, there's a, another uh, another one standing next to her mm. uh, wearing a face shield, which oh, yes. looks like a proper... Like today, like the COVID like face shield. unbelievable uh, <laughs> prescience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a guy in a wheelchair wearing one, isn't there? Yeah, so what's, what's this? <laughs> I think maybe the face shields of today are, designed, are based on that design, which was... You know, I, who knows? Brilliant, Who knows? brilliant. But uh, we've got to get talk about Peter Pan. We do, yes. Uh, well, listen, I mean, first of all, Mary Morris, uh, I instantly, if I shut my eyes, I just go, I'm taken straight away to the uh, Christmas 1992 and I got the French book, what prisoners mm. will know as the French book, which yeah. is like the first Les prisonniers. Oui, prisonniers, with all the wonderful essays in there and the yeah. series guide. And there's a, a whole page photograph of mm. Mary Morris standing on the beach uh, at twilight, I'd imagine, in her Peter Pan garb, striking yeah. a Peter Pan pose. And it's the most beautiful. It's one of my b- most beloved prisoner photos uh, of all time. But there's a lot more to her yeah. than this. And I think you know more about her well, than You were I saying do. last episode about uh, Patrick McNee and that mm. meta-reference to um, Cathy Gale being yeah. in Fort Knox. And there's almost arguably a meta-reference here to Mary Morris's career. Mm. That in 1946, although some sources say 1947, so 
pick one. Mm. Uh, she played Peter Pan. Yeah. On stage. She was a famously good Peter Pan. Very, yeah. Right? Celebrated Peter Pan. Um, and she played against, do you know who she played against? No. Alistair Sim. Oh, really? Yeah, as Captain Hook. Oh, well, my... An Alistair Sim, Captain Hook. Can, uh, can you imagine that? Oh. Going to the Scala, watching Peter Pan with Mary Morris, a very young, beautiful, androgynous Mary Morris as Peter Pan. Alistair Sim, Sim as... As Captain Hook. And do you know who else was in it? Go on. Donald Pleasance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he played Gentleman Starkey. Oh, my God. Was he... Oh, what? what, what 1946? 1946. How old, how old would Donald Pleasant... Would he been... I bet I'm, I don't know. He's probably still bald. <laughs> yes. But uh, what... what <laughs> imagine Pleasance. that. Mary Morris as Peter Pan, Alistair Sim as Captain Hook, and Donald Pleasance as a supporting character. That's... If only time travel were possible. Well, I, I saw it with... Um, uh, Les Dennis, yes, as uh, Lay Denis, Lay Denis, yeah. as uh, as as Smee <laughs> and uh, Fonzie Henry Winkler, Henry Winkler as, Peter, as uh, Captain Hook. Well, that's, you know, that's that's almost as good. So you know, you can you can stuff your Alistair Sim, your Donald Pleasance. I saw the Fonz. I was combing the uh, like the J M Barry sites and the, um, the British Panto sites, all those kind of things, trying to find um, a program. I found a program from the following year, but it's not one that Mary Morris was in. But um, there is a photo, a famous photo, of her standing by a statue of Peter Pan, learning her lines. Mm. So it dates it in 1947. Now, the one of the sites that I found credits that performance at 1946. So somebody's wrong. But it's roughly 1946 or 1947. But she was born in um, 1915. Mm. So, you know, she would have been 31, 30, 31, roughly about that age when she played Peter Pan. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, I mean, she was very, I suppose, elfin. Yes. You could describe yes. her. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, she was, yeah. I have heard her spoken of as being the definitive stage Peter Pan mm. that there ever was, you know. And it's lovely that that is celebrated or referenced in her choice of costume for Carnival. Yeah. So it is a, it is a meta reference, really. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Apparently, um, initially, uh, according to Anthony Skeen, anyway, there was talk of Trevor Howard mm, being number two yes, in this one. Yes, yes. And f- instead of Peter Pan, he was going to be dressed as Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Which is a little bit on the nose, mm, do you not think? A little bit sinister. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's something marvellously sinister about the Peter Pan. Mm. Uh, being in charge of this but to have Jack the Ripper is kind of a bit mm. see Jack the Ripper is an interesting thing I was thinking something I was thinking about last night is that we are we're deconstructing a television show that we've built up a mythos around mm. and we're now looking for these little uh, meanings and, yes. and are they intentional you know these things sometimes can just be a happy accident yeah. you know Dance of the Dead Checkmate you know that, that almost the ideas have come from other people because they've been given a free reign and it started to make sense, it started to tie together and people have applied their own meaning to it Mm. and it's a little bit like Jack the Ripper you know, if somebody came and said, you know, right, we know who Jack the Ripper is it was this person and this is how they did it and it'd be like the magic trick metaphor everyone would be like, oh but we've had so many years of building this up the London fog the man in the cape, (laughs) the top hat, the bag you know, this, this whole iconography and the, the reality would be something completely different. Yeah, rather yeah, mundane, there. I suspect. Munda- exactly, mundane. Somebody, uh, just a man who just is able to move around and, and kill and in a horrific way. But Hollywood and, you know, over a century of, of applied theories have created something new. And I think that's what 
happens with things like the prisoner as well. Yeah. But I think that I think the that's prisoner is a though. wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great thing. It makes thing. it richer and it makes it more and it makes it belong to you in a way because mm. you draw out your own conclusions. Mm. And it's not as if uh, well I'm right. Mm. I uh, you know you get there with Jack the Ripper and I've written that I've 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 worked out who it was. No you haven't. Yes. You have a theory. Well Patricia Cornwell did that. She she thought it was uh, the artist Walter Sickert. She was absolutely – she wrote a book about it. Yeah. And there was a documentary where she was basically – and I found that quite odd. She was basically looking at a picture of him going, you evil, sick man. And it's like, hold on a minute. Know, that, that, this that, is just your speculation. This is – you know, yeah. you haven't proved. Bruce Robinson did one. He of uh, the, the, the Majestic with Nermai. Mm. I think he, he, he turned ripperologist. Did he? Uh, quite recently as well, yeah. yeah. So they've all got it. But I mean, it's like with – like we're saying with the black um, uh, badges. Oh, you know what that means, yeah. don't you? Probably it meant that they, they'd accidentally ordered a couple of black ones. <laughs> yeah. But we can attach well, it's our a own stylist, thing. It's a stylistic choice. It works. It, it does. kind of coordinates yeah. with some of the uh, some of the shoes. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, the, it, it, once you start attaching your own sort of thing, it just becomes yours. Well, when, when you say about um, the badges, I think, personally, and this is something that comes up in, in Checkmate, is that Rosalie Crutchley's queen character, yeah. uh, or number eight, isn't she, in, in, in Checkmate, her eight moves on her badge. Yeah. So in one scene, it's on the left of the spoke of the penny farthing, and in one scene, it's on the, the right, suggesting different badges. So without suggesting it's continuity error, you could argue that every denizen of the village has multiple badges. They could have white badges, you can have black badges, you can have them, you know, various, depending on how yeah. you want to wear them. It's not just one singular badge. They're probably in a drawer as you arrive. Yeah. What should I wear today? I'll mm. have the eight on the left. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm wearing my red and white Breton top today. I think black badge. Is that what they're called? The Breton top. Breton yeah, the top. Picasso. That, uh, yeah. I just call them sailor tops. I don't know, I don't know they were called Breton tops. <laughs> I think everyone go. knows what you mean. Yeah. You say it. yeah. But um, did, you find, did you think that some of the costumes were quite stereotypical? Um, in what way? That they were... <laughs> what, the, basically what they had to hand. Yeah. Uh, well, who who have we got? We've got Caesar, uh, mm-hmm. Cleopatra. Uh, who are the judges? Is Elizabeth the, I. Elizabeth I. Napoleon. Of course, Napoleon. Yeah, Duncan McRae is, is Napoleon, isn't he? I don't, and and uh, Patrick McGowan as James Bond. Yes. It's kind of interesting <laughs> that he, kind of, he turns up in... Uh, Wearing the classic uh, dinner jacket, but he says it's his own suit. That, yeah, when he said it's his own suit, I expected it to be the black one he wears yes. when, he, when he arrives. Yeah. But he turns up in a in a beautiful. So he, they must have packed his his dinner jacket for him, yeah. which is very handy. Oh, well, well, Mrs. Butterworth picked it up when she was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, over yeah. At his house, still very maybe. kind. They even had it pressed. Yeah, they can drink at these parties too, which is interesting because you can't drink in the village. She has a was it has a, a fifty eight. Hmm. Uh, this is the first time you can actually have alcohol. So Maybe carnival's an uh, exception. Quite possibly, yes. Yeah. I thought it might be in some of the moonshine that Eric Portman was uh, enjoying. <laughs> this, cheers. Uh, cheers, cheers, cheers. See that guy over there. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole conceit is odd, in that this kangaroo court is assembled for the possession of a radio because he's found guilty of possessing a radio. That's the kind of semantics of it that he's mm. just he's, he's been charged with possession of radio. But actually, it's all it is. It's 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 the village saying to him, "You have to conform. Yeah. If you don't conform, he's not being punished for owning a radio. Really, he's been he's been punished." But that's what for I was saying. It, it's a kangaroo court for, yes. for a minor offence designed to scare and intimidate. 
Yeah, but he's not on. having it. He's not buying it. He's no. like, I'm just going to run off. There's a there's a brilliant bit when you know when he walks <laughs> past the security guards. Yeah. The way he just kind of shoves and pushes them aside mm. is a brilliant bit of uh, get out of my way. I don't feel like <laughs> you, you, you mean no, you don't scare me, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But it's more of sort of reference to the, the French Revolution, isn't it? I suppose to so. To Robespierre. Yeah. He even says, he sort of challenges, this is exactly what happened in the French Revolution. Mm. And, of course, you've got the Napoleon Yes, yes. Well. And the Cocteau stuff again. It's, mm. there's a sort of, it is kind of a sort of Frenchified... Yeah. Episode here. I've, I've got. Especially, you got the Brett on top as well. Well, exactly. Yes, <laughs> I've got the Alan uh, Carazé and the Ellen Oswald uh, book mm. here. I'd imagine. I haven't delved into it, but I yeah. imagine this is like, oh, this is the key. This is the key text. Yeah, this is the French. This, yes. la texte française. We. Oui. The main theme of this complex and enigmatic episode is death, the physical death of the man lying in the drawer in the morgue, the mental death of Roland Walter Dutton, the symbolic death of the prisoner, but above all, the death of desire of love of any joy in life. I don't know why I'm reading this like Richard Burton. I was just going to say, it's almost like Richard Burton's in the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and slowly and surely. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he trampled over a rights violation. Actually, that's in the book, isn't it? So you, you might be OK. Oh, I think I'm covered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there is a contradiction here. Aubrey Morris's um, town crier character says, uh, no names... Yes. Just numbers. And that's what looking at. No names. It, it almost hurts when you do that. But the telex printout with the orders for termination say Dutton. In fact, yeah, Roland Walter Dutton. Roland Walter Dutton, not his number. So there is a contradiction there. Yes, on a piece of paper where uh, the back is printed in ink mm. and the uh, white is not, that would have cost a fortune. I used to do that yeah. in school and they used to, get, they used to go mad about it. If you had any idea how much ink costs? <laughs> they, I mean, the telex machines died out, I, I suppose, once the fax machine became properly uh, integrated into the workplace. I quite recently said fax machine to somebody who was under 30 yeah. and they didn't know what I meant. I had a bit of a shock this morning, actually. Go on. Um, I was with a group of students and I showed them test card F, <laughs> which you, you know, yeah, yeah, the you balloon. may know, the yeah. little girl in the clown. And uh, not one of them knew what it was. Uh, They'd never seen it before. We're uh, at that stage now where... The platelets of time are shifting under yeah, our very feet. I know. It's very sad. Having to explain pluge patterns and uh, oh, test no. cards and... I, I have had a, a Who Are The Beatles? Oh, God. I have had one of those. I a a while had, ago as well. I once had a student who thought that the first man on the moon was Louis Armstrong. <laughs> now, that sounds like a joke, <laughs> but I swear that's an absolute true story. <laughs> I had one student once, a year seven, when I was doing my teach training, and he submitted his homework. And um, I read it, and I said, uh, you've taken this from Wikipedia. No, I haven't. He got really defensive, really arrogant. And I said, well, yes, you have. And so there's two ways I can tell. One, you've left the footnote numbers in. <laughs> and secondly, you've used the word egregious. And I went, what does egregious mean? And he looked at me and went, oh, OK. <laughs> so it just instantly makes me think of the League of Gentlemen. Yes, egregious, yes. Egregious, egregious. <laughs> but no, it was, yeah. And uh, it is sad that we're getting to this point now where so many... Pieces of information. I found that with my, my stepdaughters as well. You talk about something and they have no reference. And it doesn't have to be pop culture. You know, it could be, you know, something historical. Yeah, I think the Berlin Wall is a band. 
<laughs> it's just Roger Waters on tour in Germany. <laughs> you know, Roger but, who? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. God. But I suppose. Do you think our parents probably thought that when? Uh, I think each generation loses. Has this moment when yeah. they realise that? Well, I think I think each generation loses knowledge um, that was held by the previous generation. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather probably had intimate knowledge of the Boer War because it was still being fed to him. Yeah. So the great battles or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pff, who knows really about the Boer War these days, really? Yeah. So there's there's a scene where uh, number six runs. He, he starts with a brisk stroll, push them aside. I'm just going to walk away. And then he legs it. That That uh, is a... Terrifying. Kind of, that, that's a horror movie moment. Yes. The sound of their scream yes. as the villagers start chasing him. That... There was, ugh, there was something about that that scared the hell out of me when I saw this as a kid. At it still does. At first I thought, oh, it's the mob mentality. Thing. And I thought, no, no, no. It's almost like a collective scream of the village. Mm. Like a, as a like a gestalt entity. Yeah. You know, ah, get him. Yeah. Kind of thing. And that f- made it more terrifying. But then that's offset by the fact he finds some strange underground passage. Quite conveniently. Yes. <laughs> What's it there for? What's the purpose of this stranger? Besides, obviously, a conceit for him to to hide. But it basically just comes out in the next room. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> so somebody's gone to the trouble of, of building that. That comes out of a panel in the wall. Yeah. Yes, we need, we need to get from this room to that room. Let me think. We could build an underground passage or we could just build a door. Why do we need to go from this? I, I've already started building it. <laughs> bring up these questions now. Yes, please. Is it, is it stuff like this that sort of niggles you when you kind of think? <laughs> I'm just being. I'm just being. Oh, no, just, no, no, no just about of, this episode that it didn't I, land. I quite don't as well. know. I just, you know, like when we were preparing, I watched um, Many Happy Returns twice. Mm. This one I have watched twice as well. I usually watch them twice because I'll watch them first time just. Generally, and the second time I'll start making notes as I'm watching it, mm. so I can, I'm prepared for those. I just got, I just lost track. I just on the second, no, it was the first episode, the first time I watched Dance of the Dead. I just started, my mind just started going off, yeah. thinking about other things, and then it's like, oh, I've got to rewind it. I've got to rewind it because I watch them with the subtitles on as well. Yes, they're very. If you got Which the Blu-ray, uh, they're they're great to watch with the, well, uh, been, the text commentary. Yeah, and I've been watching a mixture of uh, sometimes to convenience on um, on a popular streaming service, um, and sometimes on the on the Blu-ray, depending on where I am. You know, mm. if I've got my iPad, I can watch it on, on there. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what it is with this one. It just doesn't pull me in. Uh, no, it, 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 I found it mesmer. I thought it was one of the most extraordinary uh, yeah. hours television that. That ever came out of the sixties. When I watched when I watched it as a you know as a teenager, I remember feeling that like it was quite dark and it was quite a, a br- it was kind of brute, very yeah, nihilistic. unrelenting episode. Today, not so much, and I don't know what it is. I think in a way, and it, this happens a few times in the uh, in the series. Mm. It's quite remorseless uh, about the villagers themselves. Yeah, if you kind of think of number two as the authority figure, there's kind of they're the politicians or yeah. something. They're the people that are directly in charge of us. But um, the villagers are us, hmm. and it doesn't go easy on us. It's it's quite happy to say, look, you, you know, you're just you're just a bunch of conforming sheep, hmm. and you're the, the, the villagers often turn on number six. Uh, so it's it's quite despairing, yeah. I think, in its in that kind of allegory. But I think that's that's great, you know. I think again, there's a lot of ideas in this episode, like you're saying about you know Orfe and and using that as an idea. That you possibly don't quite congeal. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's just, maybe it's just preference. I don't know. I'll tell you, there's one thing that I, I'd forgotten about that was quite interesting. 
and it kind of chimes in with the idea of mm. maybe this being a quite uh, effective second episode is the fact that when they obviously they get the body back and then they what they're going to do is put it out it sort of answers the question actually what what what, what are number six's friends thinking about his disappearance are mm. they looking for him is he, are, they, are, there, is there, are there search parties out there? Are, 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 are embassies being on the alert? Is there anyone actually looking for him? Yeah. The village are actually essentially going to kill him. Yeah. Uh, that's the point of putting the body out with uh, all the, his, his information on him to, to, to basically to tell the outside world that this man is dead. Yeah. Which confirmation of, of an confirmation of already his known death. fact, as she says. Yes, yes. Uh, but that's quite a, as a plot point. Mm. That's quite an interesting. It's strange that it's not actually mentioned in many happy returns. Hmm. You're back, but I thought we we found a body yeah. with all sorts of. <laughs> but that <laughs> lends credence to the standalone nature of each episode. Yes, if, if yes. you look at it from the point of view is that every episode is unique and within its own little world. Yeah, you don't have to conform to the the, the canon or the rules of the series. Yeah, but that's just one reading of it. Yeah, yeah. they're all separate elements. Mini universes. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and as I said before, this this one really does stand mm. out for me as a, as a, as a I, I will. There's, there's if there's one thing that lets it down, and I'm, I think you'll agree with me here. It it is the ending. Mm. It it kind of it doesn't really have an ending. Uh, he's sentenced to death. Uh, the villagers are about to go. When they find him, they will kill him. And then he ends up in a room. And number two, they're going. Uh, you know, it's, that seems to have instantly been forgotten, and then uh, there's a reveal of um, a Telex machine as the as the the the, uh, the power behind yeah. the throne, and it's almost like that was you know that's number one well, to a certain extent. I think, I think number I think Anthony's scheme was saying that this was um, that this was number yeah. one, and he said, well, there was nothing in there to correct it. Nothing comes in the mm. next episode to say, oh, that wasn't number one. Mm. If you were an audience member watching this for the first time, it was like, ah, that's who number one is. It's a machine. But imagine read like I was just saying a minute ago about self-contained episodes. Imagine that was a self-contained episode. Yeah, stands alone on its own, works as a number one. Because yeah. it's a machine who's who's in, who's directing life and death without any kind of Im- human emotion. Yeah, true. But I mean, it's almost like the 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 one thing you're never going to find out in this series mm. is who is number one, and that kind of lets the side down a little yeah. bit because it's not made clear that no, no, actually, no, this isn't number one. This is just this works for this episode, yeah. but that is that is not number one. Yeah, I bet lots of people are thinking, oh, I knew number one. Do you know what? I knew number one wasn't going to be a, a human. <laughs> And then, and then suddenly, it's um, it just ends on a laugh. It's yeah. a sort of it's a weak, weak ending. Yes, yes. Who's the two? So Mary Morris, uh, believe it or not, she was fifty-one in this episode. Well, she works counter to how everybody else. Everyone else yeah. is aging with immense rapidity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if that's a word. And Mary Morris is growing younger. Yeah. But she was uh, born in nineteen fifteen in Fiji. Oh yes, she was a Fijian uh, actress trained at RADA. Uh, she had her own touring production company, theatrical production company, right around the UK. Uh, one of her main uh, or starring roles was in a film called The Agitator with William Hartnell. Oh, right. The first Doctor Who. And John Laurie from uh-huh. Dad's Army. Doomed. You know, she was in A for Andromeda in 1961. Mm. She also appeared in an episode of uh, a serial of Doctor Who called Kinder in 1984. And she died in Switzerland. Uh, 1988 at the grand age of 72 but iconic I, to me she is just as iconic as McKern 
Yes, I think I think she was a very very good, very effective number two. Very sixties uh, line sort of uh, never trust a female mm. in the four legged variety. I think <laughs> well, um, that's a bit rich. She has a lovely way of speaking as well. There's something in her voice, the authority, but also there's this richness yeah, in her yeah. voice as well. He, he kind of there's, there's a playfulness mm. about her performance, and and he reacts to that quite well. I think yeah. he's not he didn't. Try and circle her or anything like that, or, or, or shout at her. Well, there's, the cat. There's, there's a sort the, of battle of battle of battle wits of wit. going on. But there's um there's a, the scene where the cat comes back into the room and goes up to number six, mm. and she says, ah, "She's taken to you." Mm. She goes, "I'm jealous." <laughs> it's like a little playfulness, isn't there? A little yes. flirtiness there. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, she's uh, she's a, she's a great great number two. I thought. Yeah. Marks out of six. Well, this is going to be interesting. Do you know what? I'm going to go for five and a half. Okay. Um, it loses half a point because of its um, because of that ending. Yeah. But I, I was absolutely won over and taken by. It. I think it's a very strong, very unique episode, mm. and uh, I loved it. Over to you, Christian. Um, it's it's a tough one for me uh, because it's never landed for me this, mm. uh, and I, I I want to love it because it's so beloved by many prisoner fans. It's one that I could happily skip though, and mm. I know that sounds blasphemous. <laughs> <laughs> the context, but for me, maybe three, three and a half. I think Mary Morris um, is the only reason I would watch it. So a generally. nine out of twelve. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine contacted and uh, said, "You only gave three out of ten for the general." And I was like, "No, it's three out of six And she went, "Oh, okay." So I've got to make sure that I say out of six now. Exactly. We should be publishing these scores. Yeah. <laughs> Splendid. Next week, it's uh, Checkmate. Checkmate. Is it not? It Wonderful. Is. Look forward to that one. Uh, meantime, just um, while we're on, just a little shout out. Some, As Chris said, some lovely comments have been coming in, some lovely messages. Thank you so much indeed for your support out there. Just a couple of names. Ren Zellen, Andy English, uh, Damien Smythe. God bless you. And to everybody else as well, please get in touch. Keep keep coming in. Like Chris says, any any corrections, any notes, Just uh, it's just lovely to know you're out there listening. So thank you so very, very much. And please be part of the conversation. I love reading the messages we get. <laughs> I say, right, OK, yeah, I'm going to note that. And, you know, we're going to try our best to dispel any any apocryphal information and, and, and get the truth out there. It is out there. Even though answers are a prison for oneself. Free For All Podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton, and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod, or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. And not to be one of those begging, insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, It all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget. So thank you very much. (laughs)